0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Jeff Sear has an incredible journey of failing and recovering health. He ended up getting a diagnosis of severe lumbar spinal stenosis in the 1970s and had a hard time walking because of his permanent nerve damage. Most of the day, Jeff would sit in his Lazy Boy, and at 330 pounds, Jeff would need to use his cane to get out of the chair. In 2005, Jeff was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Jeff was given a nutritionist who told him to eat a high-carbohydrate diet of whole grains and fruits. In 2008, Jeff finally stopped feeling sorry for himself, and he knew something had to change. So, Jeff changed his lifestyle and started exercising at a local gym. Each day, Jeff would increase the time on the bike. Over the course of the next 16 months, Jeff lost 163 pounds and eventually used a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet to further improve his health. Now he's an expert in leveraging low-carbohydrate diets to reverse the same chronic diseases that he had to suffer through. Jeff Seer, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio.
1: Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here with you, Casey.
0: Uh, we're so honored that you would be here and, and reading all of that <laughs> and knowing that we just scratched the surface on your story, we're really lucky to have you around. You probably shouldn't be here with everything that you've had to go through.
1: Yeah, there's... Uh... Can I just correct a a couple of things? Of
0: course. Yeah,
1: of course. Uh, I'm going to try and and go through this quickly. Just stop me. if In 1997, I had severe lumbar spinal stenosis. 97.
0: 97.
1: I was was 37. I had to have an emergency laminectomy infusion because my spinal column was so collapsed that I was about ready to sever all all the nerves from the waist down. Anyway, long story short, they had to do an emergency surgery. Uh, This is, uh, I was 37 years old. Uh, After that, I was out of work for a long time, close to a year. And then I ended up losing the machine shop that I had. I was a welder metal fabricator. Uh, Anyway, I was out of work for like, for a long time. Ended up losing that machine shop. Uh, Losing our house, we didn't have any health insurance. So anyway, I was uh, in 98, May of 98, uh, I went down to Bath Ironworks in Southern Maine. And I started working as a welder at uh, Bath Iron Works, makes uh, ships for the U.S. Navy. Hmm. Started working there uh, in May of 2001. I had an injury on the ship where I snapped my whole head back on a big pipe, turning a corner, ruptured three discs in the neck area, C4, C5, C6. So they had to do a laminectomy infusion of my neck uh square plate, titanium plate and rods, uh, screws. Went back to work. Then uh, I needed to, uh, in the fall of 03, another injury at work, lifting a hip, something really heavy. I uh, uh, I needed a surgery for the mid-back T11, T12, Laminate commune fusion, titanium rods and plates and screws. Then they put me, permanently uh, disabled in January of 2004. I was 44. Wow. All fused up titanium rods and plates from my neck down, almost down to my tailbone. Wow. Okay. I had always worked at hard physical jobs my whole life since a very young age. always worked all the time. So when I became permanently disabled, I became very depressed from that because I couldn't work anymore. I was always obese my whole life. I had lost weight and regained it back on many occasions. My parents sent myself and my sisters to Weight Watchers. I was like 11 years old. Wow. This is like the early 70s. (laughs) Yeah, I was 11, 12 years old. So anyway, I I've lo- i had lost and regained weight by that time, let's say, six or seven times, between 50 and maybe 125 pounds, put it all back on. And it was always with a, a very heavy carbohydrate diet, complex carbohydrates. The typical... Advice that that people are
0: given. Yeah.
1: So anyway, after uh, my last surgery, disabled, became very discouraged. I couldn't work anymore, and I was more or less locked in a lazy boy chair. And what I mean by that is, I can't lay down on my side or on my back to sleep or anything. So I had to sleep in a chair, but. Today, I weigh 178 pounds. Well, back then, I was, at my heaviest, I was 345. Wow. Let's say 330. Uh, All fused up. Uh, To get out of my chair, I had to use a cane and support on my cane to lift myself up. So I ended up having a hernia from that. So I had to go for hernia surgery. This is April of 05. So I go to the for the for the blood work pre surgery, and I was supposed to go for the hernia surgery in certain amount of days. I got a call at home the next day. Jeff, you you can't go for your surgery. You have to go see your primary care doctor or a doctor. You have to have two diabetes. Very high fasting, my sugar fasting sugar was 300 A1C of 12. Wow. I had no no idea. So anyway, I went to a doctor, which (laughs) then the doctor told me, you're a type 2 diabetic, Uh, type 2 is a progressive disease, in a few years we'll have to put you on insulin, blah, blah, blah. I knew nothing about diabetes. I knew nothing about uh, how you're supposed to eat. So anyway, they sent me to an ADA nutritionist at our local hospital. And they're pushing the same stuff then that they push today. It's basically a whole whole food, plant-based diet. So... I don't know if you want to ask me anything from that so far
0: no that's great and so so in my neighborhood there's a there's a box where people can leave books and so I'll, every few days I'll pass it and, and see different books that people leave and there's a lot of children's books and whatever and I believe at some point in your story you came across a book that I literally had in my hand about 15 20 minutes ago up in this book box which was reverse I believe it's called reversing diabetes and I, 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 it, I it's interesting to kind of flip through and see some of the things they're recommending and like a typical lunch was like two muffins and like lentil soup and like oh my goodness it seemed very high carbohydrate to me when when did you come across that book and how how much did you follow that advice
1: okay after my my diabetes diagnosis uh, anyway also at that time i'm gonna mention i was on heavy doses of oral morphine for the severe pain from my surgeries became addicted to it really in high doses I was smoking three, four packs of cigarettes a day. I had always smoked, but now I was smoking more. I weighed 330. I could barely, I needed to use a cane or a walker just to get from my chair to get a glass of water in the living room. I had to use a cane or a walker. So anyway, one day I went to the grocery store with with my wife, and I found the book. By the way, back then, I used to have to write in those those carts that you see people for handicap. Yeah. I used those in the grocery store. Mm. Now I can use a a shopping cart to hold on to. Anyway, I saw a book called Reversing Diabetes. It was written by Dr. Neil Barnard. He's a doctor that pushes. It's a whole food plant-based diet very high in carbohydrate, like, I don't know, very high, like 60%, 70%, maybe higher, zero fat, no red meat, no eggs, fish, chicken. So anyway, I read that book, and it seemed to make sense to me, you know. You count your calories, you don't eat any fat. Zero added fat, you don't touch red meat, and a lot of complex carbohydrates, pasta, oatmeal, uh, sweet potatoes, all kinds of complex carbohydrates. So it just made sense to me that it it was going to work. So that's the first book I ever read on diabetes, was that book. It's a whole. it's a whole food, plant-based diet is what it is, which I didn't realize at the time. That's what it was, because I knew nothing about any of this stuff back then. So anyway, long story short, uh, let's go to, uh, uh, after I read that book, and then one day I went with my wife again to the grocery store, Got out of my car. I was in the handicap. Get out of my car with my cane. And there's this man across the way that gets out of his car. And I see him pull out an oxygen. He's hooked up to oxygen. Pulls out an oxygen tank that is pulling alongside him. And I saw that. And that, I don't know, it's like it would have hit me with a sledgehammer. I thought to myself, here I am. Smoking three, four packs of cigarettes a day. I can't breathe. I weigh 330 pounds. I'm so obese that it doesn't make any sense. I'm type 2 diabetic. can barely walk. It, It just hit me. I thought to myself, if I continue on this path with all these drugs for pain, oral morphine, all this smoking, super obese, what am I going to do one day if I need to have be like this guy, how I'm going to be pulling an oxygen tank and a cane trying to get inside the grocery store okay. that just stuck with me. You know, that's when I started thinking, you know, things have to change here, you know, wow. slowly and you know, it takes time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that's crazy. Yeah. So, and you decided to address not only the smoking, but also the morphine, right?
1: Well, Yeah. I had to take care of three three things here. I wanted to get off of the oral morphine. I wanted to stop smoking and I wanted to lose weight and do something where I'd be able to move to try and do something. <laughs> because like I said, I was locked in a lazy boy chair. Pretty much, you might as well sit like 24 hours a day because I have to sleep in a lazy boy chair. I still do today, but anyway, back then, I've written posts on Facebook where you, you hear me say I was frozen, locked in a chair, locked in. That's what I mean by that. Yeah. So I knew I had three real hard things. To, I knew it was too, ma- too many at once. So I figured I'm going to take one at a time. One at a time. So October 1st, 2008, I quit uh, I quit smoking cold turkey. Wow. Okay. I gave that a couple of months. Then in January of 09, I quit oromorphine morphine cold turkey. I was taking high doses of that. Wow. And I never told my pain management doctor that I was going to do this. And that's just like a heroin addict that quits heroin overnight. This oral morphine, it's the same thing as that. Wow. So, bad withdrawal is pretty bad. No?
0: Yeah. Which was harder, the smoking or the uh, morphine?
1: Uh, More severe withdrawals at first from the morphine. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. Smoking was hard, too. I'm not going to say it was easy. Yeah. Wow. But... I knew that those three things were just too much to try. There's no way I, I knew that there's no way I can do all everything at once. So I'm going to try it one at a time.
0: Yeah, that's great. So,
1: yeah, so I quit the oral morphine. That was a very early part of uh Let me think that... Uh, all mixed up in my, my time. Was it
0: 2009? I believe you said it was January, 2009, when you stopped the morphine. Got it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then I gave that a couple more months. Then I started reading about, you know, exercising, which I never, I always did hard physical jobs, but I was never into, into sports or anything like that. I never, you know, I, I never did any of that stuff. And I I should, let me add something that I never talked about before. And I'm adding this because I heard you on a podcast with Tucker Goodrich and you guys were talking about barefoot walking and Tucker mentioned a guy with hammer toes and I thought to myself, well, hold on a minute here. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, I came to find out that I have a genetic form of shark artery tooth disease. It's a neuromuscular disease. I only found this out later on in life, but I was born with cavus foot and hammer toes. Oh, wow. But back then, I was born in 1960. Back then, people didn't go to doctors and, you know, you had a teenage kid, unless they'd break an arm or you never went to doctors or anything like that. Anyway, I always knew I had a hard time walking. I walked funny. I couldn't run like other kids could. I never knew why. Come to find out, when I was in my early 20s, I saw a doctor. And he told me right away, how long have your feet been this way? Wow. Says, since, since I've been born. Why? Well, he says, you have a severe case of cavus foot. Where is it? You're, it's an exaggerated high arch and your feet are clenched. And then you have hammer toes, a severe hammer toes. I was This is my early 20s. And he he seemed thrown aback by the severity of it at that young age. Because what happens is you you get hairline fractures in the bones of your feet, if it's an advanced case. And that's where I was in my early 20s. He says, the only way to fix this, he says, we'd have to take one foot at a time, break all the bones in your toes and your feet, for the way it should be, put a cast, You're in a cast for 12 weeks. Then we do the other foot. Wow. Well, anyway, I had no health insurance. And I was the type of a guy that was working seven days a week. I was married then. We had children, bills to pay. And anyway, although I, I had a hard time walking, I could never find shoes that fit correctly. I just learned to live with the pain and the hell with that, I'm not getting that surgery.
0: Wow, yeah, that sounds terrible.
1: Right, so I just kept on.
0: Mm.
1: Later on in life, through a neurosurgeon, I found this out because my mother's brother was born with cerebral palsy. And I have nieces that also have a form of these neuromuscular diseases. And that's when we tied it all together and it's genetic. That's when I found out that like the neurosurgeon didn't do, he he was 99% sure that I had CMT, shark heart and tooth, which when you have that, you're born with cavus foot and hammer toes. But now mine is, it's really advanced. Like, you know, I have a heart I've always had a hard time walking, but it just ke- keeps getting worse. Your muscles weaken, in your tendons, and your and you end up, you know, it just keeps getting worse as the years go by. And you end up having muscle atrophy from that. Wow. So anyway, I never really spoken about this, but I'm only bringing up because I heard you and Tucker talking about that, and I thought. Hold on a minute. I think it was Tucker, where he saw someone that had. The guy said he had hammer toes, and and they hold on a second because sounds familiar. There's more to this than
0: yeah, wow. the opposite. Wow. Well, thank I you never, for sharing that.
1: Yeah, I've never brought that up because. But anyway.
0: Yeah. So is that why when you started exercising was that why you chose the bike? Or was it just more comfortable for your feet than it would be for for example like walking?
1: Well, it's because. Uh, I have a hard time freestanding, and what I mean by freestanding is if I get up right now, without a cane to hold on to or kitchen countertop to hold on to, I can sit like that, like today, and talk to you for maybe a minute or two, two, three minutes, three, four minutes. But then I'll like I'll need something to hold on to. I see. I call that I call that freestanding, and that's just from what I just told you about CMT combined with having two major back and one major neck surgery, all the fusions and titanium rods, put all that together. So even today I weigh 178 pounds. I don't weigh 330 or 345. I can get up out of my chair right now without a cane. Not as quick as you, but I can do it. And I can stand, but I won't build able to freestand for very long.
0: Yeah, I see. Gotcha.
1: So I went to the gym. Okay, you want to talk about that now? Okay. Quit smoking. Quit oral morphine. Okay. Now we're in April of 2009. Okay. I knew I had, I have a, I had a hard time walking. I knew I could find something at our local gym. It was a Planet Fitness back then. I knew if I'd go in there, I could find something. I was sure that I could get my heart rate up. So I went in there and sure enough, recumbent stationary bike. So I joined the gym and I started keeping a, a diary. First day, I did like maybe two minutes, but I'd write that down. And I'd write down the mileage and the intensity and kept track of that. And I kept adding a little bit more every day kept a food diary I was on a, I was following a whole food plant-based diet. let's say zero fat, very high carb. So I kept track of all this food diary write down all everything I ate, calories, what I did at the gym. and in about I'd say 15 months, about 15 months, I lost about 163, 165 pounds. Wow. But during that 15 months, I kept on learning about, you know, I learned about METs. I learned about heart rate training. I learned about HIIT. So I, start, I started off slow on the bike, but I, I wanted to educate myself on basal metabolic rates and METs, and started learning about all that. Then I started learning about how by the way, I had a resting heart rate of about 100 beats per minute. Wow, high! Before I started all this stuff, I'm talking about. Anyway, I, I during that those 15 months, I slowly increased the amount on the bike. I got to a point where I was doing about 90 minutes a day, 32 miles at 32 miles per uh, session. And now I I was wearing a polar heart rate monitor and I was going in a lot higher intensity. Then I learned about hit like two, three days a week. I do hit not Tabitha hits, but a sprint eight it's called Phil Campbell's sprint eight. And, uh, so all this, of course, especially hit helped me to lose more weight also.
0: Wow.
1: During the frame.
0: Yeah. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So anyway, long long story short for the heart rate, I was able to finally get my resting heart rate down to like 54, or 55. Wow, that's a huge change. 100. Yeah. That was that was what they hit primarily. Mm. But anyway, I, I I hear you all the time. Not all the time, but I've heard you mention heart rate training. Yeah. I, I learned I learned about all that stuff amazing. back then.
0: Yeah, amazing. And I keep on. Anyway, that's great. In 15,
1: fifteen months, I lost all that weight. That's amazing. So now, of course, I feel a lot better. No more smoking, no more oral morphine, and I'm down to how you see me today, talking to you. So anyway, uh, I had two the diabetes. Then I, I go to my doctor after all this. Uh, this is like in 2010, let's say. Yeah, let's say, yeah, 2010. And she tells me, you know, she checks my A1C, 6.1%.
0: Much better. She says,
1: Mr. Sear, you no longer have type 2 diabetes, which I know now. That <laughs> Anyway, I was on metformin and a drug called lavandia. Avandia. She takes me off the of Avandia. I stay on the metformin. But the lowest I could get in my A1C was six point one percent. Okay. Which is not great. Because if you you know look at these charts, if you use the correct formula for six point one, it's an average blood sugar of one forty.
0: Yeah, that's high. Not ideal. Better than it was. Better than 300.
1: (laughs) Anyway, but in my mind, I thought I was cured, you know, as far as she was. I no longer had type 2 diabetes. So I was ecstatic, huh? Anyway. Then go to 2011. 2011. Uh, That same doctor does annual blood work and she finds my liver, certain liver enzymes really high, really high. And she was worried about that, rightfully so. She sends me to a gastroenterologist and she does more blood work and really high liver enzymes. I don't know what's going on, but we're gonna have to test further. So then they, they do an ultrasound of the liver, CAT scan of the liver, and then finally a biopsy of the liver. All well, this takes a couple of months. The liver biopsy confirmed everything. When she gets the results of the liver biopsy, she calls me at home. Mr. Sear, uh, we got the results. You have to come see me first thing tomorrow morning. This was in the later afternoon. Okay, what's going on? Stressful. <laughs> she says, "Well, you have a liver disease. Autoimmune liver disease. It's called primary sclerosing cholangitis. You you need to come see me tomorrow morning, first thing in the morning." So I go, and she tells me. We've done all this testing and the liver biopsy confirms it. You have primary sclerosis and cholangitis. It's an autoimmune liver disease. You're in the very early stages, very early. So usually people will have this for eight to 10 years and then you end up with total cirrhosis of the liver. What happens with this disease? The the bile ducts of your liver get inflamed, large and inflamed, and they and they narrow up, or it gets to the point where bile can't pass through anymore. It's all plugged up, and you end up getting total liver failure, uh, cirrhosis of the liver. Wow. She says most people can take eight to ten years. She says, you're in the very early stages, so probably longer. Okay. What can be done? I asked her. She says, well, the only thing we can do is keep monitoring you every six months. And when it ends up getting worse, we can try and put you on certain medications and it ends up getting worse and worse. Then they try and pass stents through your bile ducts to try and unplug it, which is eventually eight, ten 10 years, maybe 15 years in your case, you will end up with total liver failure.
0: Wow.
1: Okay, that's it. So then she sent me for a second opinion to get it confirmed and it was all confirmed. And I asked her, nothing I can do with diet or, you know, diet has nothing to do with that. That's, that's the story. It's an autoimmune liver disease. And there's nothing more I can tell you. Wow. So they pretty much sent you home, you know. F- now at this point, when she told me that, I had... I had already overcome a a lot. So I thought, you know, maybe I had a chance of living longer, you know. So when she told me that, it threw me back. And I thought, you know, I can't just, You know, stop now, so sorry about that. So that's when I started researching. Uh, I just put in, you know, I, I wasn't great on computers. My wife just bought me a computer. Anyway, I looked up autoimmune diseases, and one thing led to another, and started looking at ketogenic diets. And, well, I was born in 1960 and my father had a heart attack at a young age and, you know, you know how does it was, saturated fat yep. and cholesterol and eggs? My father was to the far end of that because his father had, anyway, he had major heart problems and we were brought up to live in fear of saturated fat. So I started doing all this research. And it went against everything I was ever taught, you know. Started looking up ketogenic diets and very low-carb diets on all these different things and for type two diabetes. And so I just kept on researching and researching and reading papers on PubMed and reading books on diabetes and Dr. Bernstein's Diabetes Solution. Then I read Volick and Finney's Art and Science of Low Carbohydrate Living low carb performance and just kept reading books and researching. And I was doing this all the time. I was like, you know, and I thought, you know, the more I was reading, like I was still terrified of eggs and cholesterol and saturated fat and red meat. But the more research I was doing, anyway, I researched it for almost a full year. That's how terrified I was. And then I thought I'm going to try this. So November, November 2012, I started a very low-carb ketogenic diet. I had to go for blood work every six months for my liver panel. And it took a little bit, but after about 18 months, saw a big change in the liver enzymes, which my liver doctor kept track of. And I kept on doing this, and my A1C was getting a lot better too. Fasting triglycerides, HDL. My HDL cholesterol used to be 29. I had fasting triglycerides of 250. Anyway, every six months, I had to go for blood work at the liver doctor. Took a little bit, like I said, after about 18 months, enzymes started coming down. Took a couple years, though. Like, Christ, 2012, 13, 14, 15. I don't know. It might have taken three years, maybe, to bring those liver enzymes, all of them, Back to totally
0: normal.
1: Wow! Totally normal. Wow! Uh, Now my lipid panel and my liver enzymes are totally, totally normal. Uh, Type two diabetes in full remission. My last A one C last December was four point five, my lowest ever. That's amazing. No drop just exercise and diet. I'm 62 now, no medication. Uh, You know, liver enzymes are totally normal. And here's the kicker, which I don't know if anyone has an explanation for me, I can't explain it. I was diagnosed with an autoimmune liver disease from the gold standard liver biopsy. All kinds of testing, confirmed by another liver doctor. And I needed to apply for new life insurance a couple of years ago. Or in 2022. Like, let's go back to like, time goes by so fast. Like 2017, I'll say. I needed to apply for new life insurance, but I knew. I was afraid to ever do it before because of that diagnosis. Autoimmune liver disease. That's they see that. Forget it. So I went for more testing in uh, twenty seventeen. That same liver doctor. They did all the blood work and everything, and he he wrote a report for me. This patient no longer has any signs. primary sclerosing cholangitis. And he told them the whole story and everything. And I was able to get a new life insurance policy.
0: That's amazing. Wow. What an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. That's absolutely incredible um, and very emotional. We really appreciate you being authentic with that. It kind of, it kind of sets up something interesting. Like we look back at your story and we say that you were able to make so many improvements on a plant-based diet. One that they recommended a very high carbohydrate type diet. You did make progress. You did lose weight. You did improve your blood sugar numbers, but only to a certain extent. And even, even today, one of my clients who was diagnosed type two diabetic diabetic several years ago, and has done really well with a low carbohydrate diet. He, he just texts me, uh, about Dr. Joel Furman, I believe his name is, which is, I, I want to say, a, a vegetarian kind of doctor who recommends like 90 to 95% of calories from vegetables. And it's just, it's always confusing. People always get confused about this stuff because there's so many mixed messages. We know that if he eats primarily a carnivore diet, he tends to do really well. But again, you're always thinking, like, well, what, am I, you know, am I eating too much cholesterol? Am I going to have a heart attack? This headline says a ketogenic diet is bad for me, processed meat is bad for me. If I get too much animal protein, I, I, my kidneys won't be able to handle it, and, and protein is killing me. And these messages keep coming up, and they're so difficult. How, how do you, how would you explain that? And
1: they're they're worse. Well, you just everything you just said. It's more pushed today than it was in two thousand. You know, two thousand and five when I was diagnosed, as bad as it was then, I think it's even worse today. I think which you're is, right, but anyway. Yeah. All the research that I've done, and I do a lot of research, I'm not saying I'm 100% right, but I can tell you, everything I've looked at is what, I'm sure you've heard of that, it's called the personal fat threshold. Yeah. When it comes to, Ted Naiman talks about that a lot, when it comes to type 2 diabetes, and what, what, like what causes insulin resistance. What Dr. Naiman is talking about is correct, but what they're explaining is like the end stage, like Jeff, when he weighed almost 300, like almost at his full weight, you know, that's what, that's what he's talking about. You have to back up, you need to go further back. How does insulin resistance start and I think it starts from, from from ceramides. And these ceramides, they're made from saturated. It's the saturated fatty acid ceramides, C16 and C18. C16 is palmitic acid. C18 is steric. But the main one is C16 palmitic. That one is used as substrate to make the precursor to to these toxic ceramides if they're in excess. It's like blood sugar. Normal blood sugar for the human body is 70 to 110, maybe 120. The body does what it has to do to keep that tight window. Well, uh, ceramides, it's, it's... Ceramides are a fat-derived molecule. And C16 palmitic acid-saturated fat is very important. The human body maintains that that palmitic, that palmitic in a tight window. So if you're getting it from, from meat, like red meat, it's going to have a mixture of like, oh, I don't know, 45 to 50% monounsaturated c 18 Olay Maybe like 6% uh, polyunsaturated. And then the rest is going to be 20% maybe of uh, C18-steric saturated fat, 25% C16-saturated. Like a a 12-ounce ribeye has about, oh, maybe 13, 14 grams of C-16 palmitic, a 12-ounce ribeye. A 12-ounce sirloin has maybe 6 grams of C-16 palmitic. The reason why C-16 palmitic, also known as palmitate, That's what's used as substrate when it's in excess to make saturated fatty acid ceramides in excess. It starts with palmitate. And oddly enough, like, let's say, like back in the 1930s, Dr. Walter Kepner had this famous rice diet. Was a rice, basically rice and fruit, and maybe 5% protein. Well, the type 2 diabetics, you put on it like 1,200 calories a day. You can, with excess glucose, the liver, through de novo lipogenesis, converts the excess glucose to guess what? C16 saturated fatty acid palmitic acid. The fat cells in the liver have the machinery to convert the excess C16 saturate to C18 steric, and from there, C18 oleic, monounsaturated. So the body, the uh, like if you take a uh, biopsy of your fat cell, it should contain The body's going to want to try and keep that at about, let's say, 50 to 57% monounsaturated C18, uh, 25 to 30% palmitic, and maybe 18% uh, poly, N6 and N3 uh, omega. The body, you, you have to maintain a certain amount of palmitic saturated because uh, that's what's used to make the protective barrier over your lungs, C, C, C16-saturate. And it's also used for cell membranes and uh, cholesterol esters and other functions in the body. So the body regulates that very tightly. So what happens is you go on these high carbohydrate diets, right? Like you're this person that you're referring to, Furman, Dr. Furman. He doesn't want you to eat any red meat. First of all, when you eat dietary fat, that's broken down in the small intestines. And it's packaged with a lipoprotein chylomicron, okay? Which is the APO apB 48. That gets delivered as triglyceride via the lymph system into your circulation. Your muscles are going to use some of that. The rest is delivered to your subcutaneous adipose tissue and it's stored, and it's metered back out for use later from there. Okay, a few remnants go back to the liver. And it's never perfect. You have lipid spillover, fatty acid trapping. Anyway, a little bit goes back to the liver as remnants. Very little. When you eat these very high-carb diets, the liver sees by far the highest concentration of insulin. Insulin and glucagon are secreted from the pancreas and via the portal vein, first passes the liver. So the liver sees three to four times higher concentrations of of insulin than the periphery, than the muscles or anything else. In fact, the liver... Is supposed to take out, you know, sixty-five percent or so of the insulin on the first pass. So, what happens on these high-carb diets? Uh, you start this this palmitate. The liver and the and the fat cells talk to one another. They're always in communication. The pancreas too, but And the liver responds immediately. By that, I mean like, you wake up in the morning, you're fasted overnight. Your fat cells are releasing free fatty acids into the circulation. Your muscles use some, the liver takes those free fatty acids, repackages them with a VLDL, traffics them back out. So you wake up in the morning, now, you eat a meal. Well, now you're, you're in the fed state. The dietary fat that you ate, I already explained that. Carbohydrate, your muscles are supposed to take up like 80%, 85% of that glucose load.
0: That's right.
1: Okay? So... What happens with these really high carb refined carbs, like we have today with fructose, refined carbs, quick acting stuff. Uh, now the liver is making a lot of the the liver, if there's excess glucose from the meal, the fat cells also have can can do de novo lipogenesis. But the liver, at first pass insulin, at high insulin, shuts off fat burning. It uh, it upregulates the liver transcription factor, SREBP-1C. That upregulates the machinery to make fat from glucose, liver the lipogenesis. That gets upregulated. And now you're making a lot of C16 saturated fatty acid palmitate. I don't know if you can see this picture here.
0: Yeah, this is great.
1: Yeah, you see this here? Yep. That's a VLDL molecule. Yep. Which is packaged in each unit of triglyceride. Now that's chock full of guess what, C16, Saturated fatty acid palmitic, and you've got a lot of free fatty acids floating around that palmitate in the liver. And they've shown that, first of all, these ceramides, especially C16, made from that palmitate, is what that's how insulin resistance starts. Starts in the liver, the this palmitate is embedded in your lipoproteins, that VLDL molecule, there's two different diameters of VLDL. There's one and two. When it's in the liver, when it's triglyceride rich like that and packed full of palmitate, that's a VLDL one molecule. And it's a lot larger than the VLDL two, which is made like you're fasting overnight. You've got free fatty acids coming to the liver, that's a VLDL two molecule. That's just his normal size and diameter. But this triglyceride rich VLDL is chock full of C16 palmitate, like 99% of it is. The liver has the machinery also like the fat cells, what I said a while ago, to take excess palmitic elongate it to C18, steric, then go to monounsaturated. But in this situation, like of all these refined carbs, this high load hitting the liver, this machinery can't keep up there to convert the excess. So it's all palmitate. And that palmitate is what's used as substrate. It starts in the liver. To make uh, ceramides, they're saturated fatty acid ceramides. Palmitate is the starting substrate. Then there's, I don't want to make this too complicated, but palmitate is what is used to make the precursor to ceramide, which are called dihydroceramide. Okay, you make the dihydroceramide in the liver. You've got six different ceramide synthesis, one to one through six. And then those take different fatty acids like C16 saturated C18, goes all the way to C24. But in type 2 diabetes, now they've shown in atherosclerosis, fatty liver insulin resistance, they all start with C-16 and some C-18. The cholesterol esters are choked full of that. The the liver makes ceramide from the excess palmitate fatty acid. And those ceramides are, are in that DLDL molecule that morphs into an LDL. That gets into your muscle cells, C16 and C18 ceramides get deposited in your muscle cells. That's what causes insulin resistance. How? those well, ceramides interfere or they impair the AKT insulin pathway. The AKT insulin pathway is what activates the GLUT4 Receptors that are needed in the muscles and in your fat cells to allow the glucose into the muscle cell. Mm. That GLUT 4, it's an insulin, it's an insulin dependent mechanism for the muscle. You need that GLUT4 brought to this to the surface so glucose can come in. Those ceramides accumulate in muscle tissue. And they antagonize that AKT insulin pathway. AKT impairs that glut four. So now your muscles are insulin resistant. Yeah, wow. You can't take up. So now more gets diverted to the liver. You sit down and have a sweet, big bowl of, or even uh, have a sweet potato, 75, uh, have a baked potato, medium size, 75 grams of carbohydrate. Muscle can't take it up. More, most of it gets diverted to the liver. Liver de novo lipid, You're making more saturated fatty acids, C16, palmitate, more ceramide in the liver. That's how you get fatty liver. That's how your muscle becomes insulin. This is how it starts. Wow. That's that's how it's they, they they've shown in a young women that have PCOS. They have, they're super insulin resistant. And I've read papers where they show that they have, I don't know, it's a crazy number like 200% higher accumulation of C16 and C18 saturated fatty acid ceramide accumulated in their muscles. And of course, they're super insulin resistant. Of course they are. Wow. See, but these vegan do- these vegan doctors say don't eat red meat. You ask them why? It's inflammatory. Why? Because of the saturated fat. Really? Do you know how many different lengths of saturated fat there are? C four, C six, all the way through C thirty. But the ones that are problematic for fatty liver, type two diabetes, insulin resistance. CVD, it's mainly the C sixteen, but it's not the saturated. I already explained to you, if you're eating a steak, a twelve ounce, twelve ounce ribeye, it's it's the C sixteen palmitate saturated fatty acid that's made from your excess carbohydrates. Yep, that's made. That's used as substrate to make those ceramides. We need ceramides, but it's like blood glucose. Too much. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, Dr. Gary Fetka put a a video out. You must have seen it. Carbohydrates, the dose, doses, the poison. Well, <laughs> that's what's making these saturated fatty acids ceramides. And by the way, I've written posts where I talk about lipid induced apoptosis, which means cell death. Well, <laughs> Professor Unger was the first one to show this and gone on to show a lot more. Beta cells and heart cells, for some reason, are susceptible to this. <clears throat> it's C16 ceramide lipid-induced cell death. It kills beta cells And there's plenty of papers that show it kills heart cells.
0: Wow.
1: Here people have type 2 diabetic cardiomyopathy. That's what I'm talking about. Wow. These ceramides are killing heart cells. They kill beta cells. These ceramides accumulate in your pancreatic alpha cells. And they cause severe insulin resistance in the alpha cells. If you look at a picture of the human pancreas, every glucagon-producing alpha cell is juxtaposed with a pancreatic uh, beta cell. And for good reason. Because insulin has to contain glucagon in the pancreas. Insulin, by far, is in in its most potent form in the pancreas. But anyway, these ceramides induce really bad insulin resistance on the pancreatic alpha cell. So insulin can no longer properly contain. I forgot to mention one important thing, too. I should have said this first. Sorry. C16, specifically, saturated fatty acid ceramide in the liver, they've shown that The liver is the place that is where the excess circulating ceramide is, is C16. C16 interferes with the pathway in the liver called a transcriptional factor FOXO1. FOXO1 instructs, it, it controls liver gluconeogenesis, the rate. You hear people say, Gluconeogenesis is demand-driven. You hear that all the time. Yeah, it is. But what controls that? The transcription factor FOXO1. C16, saturated fatty acid ceramide, specifically impairs the AKT-slash-PKB insulin pathway. That pathway... Uh, inter, uh, messes up FOXO1. FOXO1 is not working anymore. FOX, you more or less have unregulated liver gluconeogenesis. Also, that also, it also, and that same pathway, the AKT insulin, that upregulates that liver transcription factor in the liver. Uh, it uh, impairs the liver cell from taking up glucose. It uh, increases big time liver de novo lipogenesis. Uh, it create, that's how it starts in the liver. It's not from a saturated, because the typical human body needs about 30 grams per day of c16 palmitic saturate if you go on a plant-based diet you can make it from glucose in the liver if you don't want to eat meat and you you'll still make that palmitic and you'll still make the right like if you're going a whole food whole food plant-based diet you'll still make it yeah but when you're eating, like I said, a 12-inch ribeye has about, it's either 12 or 14 grams. But they've shown that when you take it in, in the diet, well, first of all, in a carnivore, very low-carb diet, fat's your primary fuel source. So a lot of that palmitic, you can use that in the the Krebs cycle for energy. You'll burn it as fuel. So it's not going to be a problem anyway. But the body, like I said, your fat cells, if there is an excess dietary of c 16 of uh, palmitate, the liver converts that to C18 steric saturate. Then it goes to C18 mono. So it keeps that regulated. It's the excess refined carbohydrate or the super high carb diets. That's how it all starts. That's how insulin resistance starts. Wow. That's when you have eight-year-old sons and daughters that have fatty liver type 2 diabetes because of what I just explained.
0: Wow. Wow. That is... yeah, Does that make sense? It, it, it does. And I would just say, like, for the listener, like, if you're not familiar with some of these concepts, you, you're you going to have to go back and listen to some of that again. But I would argue to the listener that that was probably one of the most clear and simple and concise explanations about what is going on. And it's it's such an interesting thing. You're talking about these two different systems, They're like the lymphatic system, which is the way we're designed to run all the time and use the fat and the diet as fuel versus what I would call and what Dave Champion calls in his book, Body science, the hepatic system. And it's, it, it's just, it's, it's a misunderstanding of if I'm eating saturated fat, that's going to cause the saturated fat issues in the diet versus just making it, which you're going to do anyway. But now you've got all these other problems, which you described perfectly from running on a plant-based whole foods diet that that you're going to cause all these other problems. You just described the, the modern society up and down the predicament that everybody is in. I thought that was a great explanation.
1: Yeah, I was going to, uh... Make some pictures with all kinds of charts and try and explain it, you know. But anyway, it's all here. I can explain it.
0: No, that's. That's amazing. You, you explained it very clearly again for the listener. If you didn't pick up on that, I would say it's absolutely worth it to go back, re-listen. And I would also invite people to go check you out on your Facebook page. You do an incredible amount of research and you post it there also in a way that I feel like is very understandable. You do have a lot of charts and diagrams and you explain all of that stuff really well. So what, what made you, what made you want to go to social media to be able to share that message?
1: Before I'm going to answer that, but can I? I forgot an important point with all this ceramide stuff. I left a big piece out, and it's important. Uh, 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 excess ceramides accumulate in the mitochondria, and uh, what happens is it impairs what's called mitochondrial fission-fusion factor, and what happens is It takes nice, healthy mitochondria. It takes it and it pulls it apart. So now your mitochondria can't function properly. Uh, You you can't burn fat for fuel. I've heard you talking about when you worked in the gym as a trainer and a metabolic card. And As you're talking, my hair is going up. I mean, of course. Well, you've got these obese type 2 diabetics. And when I say obese, we all have a genetic predisposition as to how much subcutaneous fat mass we can safely make. You eat a meal, the excess energy is supposed to get stored in your subcutaneous adipose tissue. It comes out later in between meals for use. We all have, a, like me, I wish I had a picture to show you, but Jeff, 330 pounds. <laughs> okay, now I'm 178. Well, I can get really fat. Mm. What happens is once you reach Dr. Naiman, your personal fat threshold, where you can no longer soak up that excess energy fast enough, the excess gets diverted to visceral ectopic fat and yeah. abdominal. And that's how now you've got Frank, like, now you've got full blown type 2 diabetes. That's right. And I wanted to explain what I did because that's like the end game, you know? I, I forgot what I was trying to tell you. You asked me a question before I started
0: that. Yeah, I did ask you about Facebook. Why was it important for you to not only do the research, but also post it in a way publicly on social media that is easily accessible? I think it's a a, a great resource for people to go we'll and make, we'll make sure definitely that we'll tag that in the show notes today. But why did you want to share that on social media?
1: Well, I wanted to share it as much as I could because really because of all the bad advice I always give it. When I when I was told I had type two diabetes, when I was all the years I was told that, don't eat saturated fat, don't eat red meat, don't eat eggs, don't eat cholesterol. When I started unraveling all this, you know, that's when I felt that people need to know you can uh, put type two diabetes in full remission. With a very very low carb diet, some people you like to use a carnivore diet. You know, there's different. I'm not gonna say one's better than the other. I you have to find out what's optimal for you. You know, some people you have to figure some of this out for yourself. But I wanted to share my experiences and try to show people that there is a better way. You know, you can't just go and listen to the American Diabetes Association or a nutritionist from the ADA and follow those guidelines. And need to be on medications. They have a, a ADA guideline: a well-controlled diabetic A1C of seven percent.
0: Wow, too high.
1: That's an average blood sugar of one seventy-two.
0: That's too high. Yeah,
1: wow. You know. Blood sugar runs between 70 and 110. Like 85 is a normal blood sugar. You take a you go on the street and take a normal metabolically healthy person that had a meal at, at noontime. I don't care, it's a mixed meal, carbohydrate, protein, and fat. Take his blood sugar, it's gonna be about 85. Yeah. Dr. Bernstein tested thousands. Dr. Bernstein, people are, you, you see, let me be 83. Well, Dr. B, that's how when he started learning about all this, people in his clinic, he test them out. And adults in between meals, 83, 85. Wow. That's how Bernstein came up with that. So, wow. But the American Diabetes Association tells you type a diabetic is well-controlled at seven.
0: Too high.
1: That's a normal sugar of 172. It's too high,
0: it's way too high
1: can't imagine what the damage that's going on there. Yeah. Your blood vessels. Yeah. I mean, we, we could make a long podcast on just that, but anyway. Yeah.
0: Wow. <laughs> well, that is amazing. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up and I'm so glad that you've done so much research and you are willing to share that. Jeff, this has been an incredible conversation. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and your story and also learning so much about everything that you've learned and researched. Where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work?
1: Yeah, the only place is on Facebook, on my Facebook page.
0: Keep it easy. Yeah, your- That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm telling you, you're not missing out on anything by not being on Twitter, by not being on LinkedIn and all the social media. It's so complicated and confusing to just stick with one and stay there. I think it's a good strategy. So I would I would continue on that path. Jeff Sear, what an amazing conversation. Like I said, thank you so very much for not only sharing your story, um, which again, was very emotional and very authentic, but, but also, again, to do the research and to identify some of these things. And, and, and I think a better skill is even to be able to communicate it in a way that's really understandable is we're we're just so grateful for it and we're grateful for you and we're grateful for the time that you took to be on our show today we really appreciate you
1: okay thank you very much it was an honor to be on your butt.
0: it was such an honor to host you. you thanks jeff and this has been another episode of balanced body radio As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form, very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We're also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes the Boundless body radio premium podcast we have three that are launching right now and i will be making a new one every other week and we believe that we are providing these for a very very high value so please check us out on patreon check the link in the notes to be able to get there and thank you as always for listening to boundless body radio